Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today, and I encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along. I'm not going to read the passage ahead of time. No, we're going to work through it this morning. We'll be there in just a moment. Uh, But let me ask you a a question. Uh, Can you say the word tob, T-O-B, tob? Can you say it? Fantastic. Look at this. You're speaking Hebrew. Uh, The word tob means good. And in fact, um, it means good or better. Uh, And so actually when um, Sally, you were reading from Genesis 1, and God looked at the world and behold, he saw that it was tob. He saw that it was good. All right. Uh, this is important for our passage today. This word, tob, good, better, comes up again and again and again and again because our passage is asking the question, what is good? What is the good life? And this is a question that we find in Ecclesiastes, but indeed I think it's a question that many people are asking as well. What is good? Like, what am I meant to do? How, How am I meant to live my life? Well, God wants us to ask that question, and he's very interested in the answer that we have for it as well. So Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12, this is the very final verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We are right in the heart, the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. And there we read this verse, For who knows what is good, what is tob, for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow, Again, the teacher of Ecclesiastes has a real way with words, doesn't he? Uh, Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now, I know it's two questions here, but they are indeed related to each other. How can you know what is good in your short and passing life? And how can you know this if you can't even know what's going to happen after you? You know, how can you work this out? And these are questions about what the good life, what a good life is is in this world? How do we discover it? And in a sense, the rest of Ecclesiastes, the final six chapters, are going to be answering this. Well, we'll look at those in the coming weeks, but this morning we're just going to look at a little bit of the answer. Today we're just in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. These are the verses that come directly after this question. But before we get to them, I want to relate them to something that Jesus said in a way that he taught us. Because I think this is instructive. I think this is helpful for understanding what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is doing. And I know, I know, I'm working from Jesus back to the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Bear with me. I think this is helpful. So at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is up on the Mount, and he starts the sermon with the Beatitudes. Do you know them? Yeah, I'm sure, sure they're very familiar. Uh, They start in verse 3, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and on and on. Uh, And you know what? They're a very surprising description on Jesus' part of what the blessed life is. We could say what the good life is, but Jesus says the blessed life. And, you know, Jesus has a real way of teaching, doesn't he? It's very, very, very clever because none of these blessed ways of living are what you would expect. None of them. And so the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor in spirit, they're generally not the people we think are blessed. 
But Jesus, he, he surprisingly, a little bit counterculturally, tells us, no, they actually are the blessed. These people who have a, a poverty of spirit, a lowness of spirit, we might say a humility of spirit, a smallness before God. These are people who recognize their need of God. They, Jesus tells us, whatever the world thinks, they are actually blessed by God. And Jesus here is teaching us here in the Beatitudes of the attitude, the the mindset, the orientation we are meant to have as God's children. You want to know how to live as God's children? You want to have a blessed life? Have these attitudes, these mindsets, this orientation to your life. Now next up, verse 4, I wanted to include this one particularly. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let me suggest, and suggest strongly, uh, this is not about mourning over someone's death, although it's a very understandable thing to mourn over. No, this is talking about an attitude here. Like those who are poor in spirit or spiritually humble before God, so those who mourn, those who grieve before God, they grieve over their sins, they will be blessed because they will be comforted by God, which is a pretty great blessing indeed. And so on, Jesus' list goes of what true spiritual blessing looks like. Now, important here is that none of these, I think there's about nine of them, none of them are what we would expect. This is different to the way the world thinks. And honestly, it's different to the way we would naturally think. But here is the power of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. This is what we're called to. It's different from what you think. So you've got to think about this intentionally. You've got to know the life that you are called to, to indeed to enjoy God's blessing. Well, the teacher of Ecclesiastes teaches us in a very similar way, a surprising way, a way that is not how we would expect, but it is a way that makes a point, a surprising point, so that we will learn them. Uh, In fact, the teacher of Ecclesiastes here makes eight points. This is Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 to 14. So verse 1. (coughs) A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Now, like Jesus did with the Beatitudes, I want to suggest that the teacher here in Ecclesiastes is calling us to an attitude, a mindset, an orientation of our heart that is not natural in this world or in our lives. Character, which is what a good name is, character matters more than fine perfume. Fine perfume's all right, but even someone with a stink character with all the perfume in the world is still not fun to be around, are they? We all know this. Your character matters more than what you have. It matters more than your stuff. And while a birth is a really joyous time, yay, a new life, uh, it's just the beginning. It's not what it's meant to lead to. It's just the start of what it's meant to lead to. It's actually someone's death, the end of their life, where you will see the fruit of their life. You can't really look at a baby and go, 
They're going to be amazing. They're going to be such a great character. No, you can't do that. At someone's death, well, then you can do that. Because honestly, everything's summed up then, isn't it? There isn't any more to do. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? Uh, we can make all the New Year's resolutions we might want to, but tell you what, there's nothing quite like going to someone's funeral, particularly someone who's a similar age to yourself, uh, and looking at that casket and going, oh, jeepers, that's me. <laughs> That'll be me in a while. Uh, it sobers us up real quick, doesn't it? And it gets us thinking about, what am I, what am I actually doing with my life? What am I meant to be valuing? What am, what am I meant to be pouring my life into? What will my life amount to? And this is the way it should work. You know, I take a, a, a few funerals, not actually that many, but a few, and some of the things I've never, ever heard at a funeral, you can tell me later if you have actually heard this, but tell you what, at all the funerals I've taken, I've never, ever heard anyone mention of the deceased person's bank balance. Never. I mean, it'd be pretty wrong, wouldn't it? But actually, it never even gets a mention. Because tell you what, at that stage, it doesn't matter if they have a hundred bucks or a million bucks in the bank, it's not their money. They're gone. Sure, their kids might care about it, a low inheritance, but no one mentions it because it just doesn't matter. Now they want to talk about what type of person that person was. Ah, now, whether they were a stingy person or a generous person, that'll matter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, likewise, we're at someone's funeral, almost, there's almost no talk about someone's qualifications. Now, hear me. You might get mentioned, ah, oh, they went and did that degree or a master's or a PhD or whatever. might get a mention. That's it. People don't linger on it. I tell you what, the stories they will tell, oh, this person, you know, input into my life in this way, they made me laugh here with this ridiculous story. They talk on and on about those, and rightly so. I mean, I'm all for getting qualifications and whatnot, but actually, what is the quality of your life? A degree doesn't define that. Masters doesn't define that, does it? And come your funeral, no one's going to be talking about those things anyway. They really, really won't. No, they care about the type of person you are. You know, the very final book, oh, sorry, the final verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, so this is in chapter 12, very final verses, <coughs> tell us, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. When the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes calls us here to a character that matters, he's not forgetting God. He's not, not at all. But he is presuming that in the end, at your funeral, it is your character, how we lived before God, how we treated the widow and the orphan that will be said at our funeral and that God will look at. God doesn't really care about your degrees either, for the record. <laughs> it is not for a moment that we earn our salvation, but that our right fear 
our reverence of God, our right knowledge of God will show in our lives. It will come through. And how will it come through? How we treat others. How we treat the most vulnerable, particularly. How we treat children. You know, we could go on here to talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But what do you want to be known for? You can answer that in lots of ways. Let's get more specific. What do you want God to know you for? Because nothing's going to be hidden from him. Nothing. And here's the teacher's point. Death helps us with our values and priorities in this world. Or death should help us with our values and priorities in this world. When you stand before God, what will he see in you that shows that you knew him? What will he see in you that shows that you trusted him? What will he see in you that shows that you loved him? Really important to learn that lesson now, not later. Verse 3. Frustration is better than laughter. Teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's so cheery, isn't he? Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Let me ask you, and I mean this sincerely, how many of you this past week have been frustrated over something? Yeah? Anyone? A little sign. Okay, thank you. Anyone here been sad recently? Yeah? Uh, what about mourned over something, someone or something recently? Some of that? Yeah. Hands around. You know, while none of those things, frustration, sadness, and mourning might be good, uh, there is a very good chance, very high chance, that God was using all of them in your life for your benefit. Again, hear me, I'm not saying they're good, but I am saying God is using them in your life for your good. Because that place of grief and unhappiness is often the place we need to be to change and to grow. It's often the place we need to be to become wise. And that's the point here. God glorifying wisdom coming through in our lives. When life is good and easy, when we're laughing and having a ball, honestly, we don't really grow as we need to. We just, we just don't. But in that place of frustration, that place where we're motivated because we don't want to be there, quite honestly, uh, that place where we look at ourselves and indeed this world as it really is, which is something we quite often avoid, that is the place we can actually grow. You know, Peter the Apostle spoke of this reality in the New Testament uh, when he said, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, uh, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, Peter 
saw that the trials of our lives, the trials of your life, prove your faith. That, that's where your faith is going to come through. It's not that your faith isn't there the other time. It's just that it's going to shine through in those times. These times come to test us. And none of us want them, but all of us have them. And they come so that our faith can be confirmed. And this is, is, this is Peter's assurance to us that in those times, your faith is of more value than gold or anything else. This is what matters. This is what really matters. Your faith coming through in this, those times. And this mindset, again, this is a mindset and attitude, is important for us to have, important for us to learn. Because wise living, godly living, often starts with grief or frustration or sadness in our lives. Again, not saying those things are good, but often they are the things that God uses to move us to a good place. And you know what? It's, I think it's helpful to think about Jesus here himself. Uh, we see his faith, his trust in God, ultimately or most clearly in those times when his life was the hardest for him, don't we? Those are the times when his trust in God shines through. And likewise, with your life and my life as well. Wise living, the right valuing of things, often starts with grief. Let's not miss out on the wisdom, the growth, and indeed the praise to God that can happen in our griefs and sadnesses. Wouldn't it be sad if we went through trials, grief, sadness, frustration, and there was no good that came from it? Well, that would be doubly sad. Let's not do that. Let's learn from these things. Third point, uh, it is better, it is tob, uh, to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. You know, thorns are under a pot. They can provide a flash of flames, but they don't really give any heat to cook anything. It would be a bit like trying to cook a meal over a, a, a fire of gorse. You know, there's a lot of fire, there's a lot of smoke, but not a lot of heat. And likewise, the song of fools can sound appealing in our lives, but it doesn't really provide any heat. It doesn't really provide any benefit to our lives. As the teacher of Ecclesiastes points out to us, and as I think we well know, we all like fun songs. Fun songs are fun. And likewise, we like Amusing TV wasn't around in the teacher's time, but we do, don't we? And there is a time and a place for watching comedies in life, uh, but it can't be our diet. It can't be the main part of our diet. For God's people, comedies can't be the way we live life. As tempting as that might be at times, it can't be. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you! who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You've got to understand him carefully there, the context that he's talking in. Jesus wasn't saying that laughter is bad. 
but those who live their lives here and now by laughing their way through it, by ignoring God, they're only going to end up with weeping and tears. No, there has to be a serious part to our life as well. And aside from learning wisdom in those places of frustration, sadness, and grief, the other place that we can learn godly wisdom from is from people who speak into our lives. Uh, It is a great thing to learn the lessons of God in those hard places. Tell you what, it's an equally great thing to learn the lessons of God without having to go through those hard places. But instead, when we learn, when other people have been through those hard places, There should be a value, there is a value, quite frankly, when I learn from the work that God has done in Laurie's life. And Laurie can look into my life and say, Mike, that's a dumb thing. That's a rebuke, that's a correction, that's a dumb thing. Don't go that way, go this way. And it's a wonderful thing to hear and to learn from it. Hopefully I do learn from it, I do heed it. As Proverbs puts it, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Here's the point. Uh, You'll have plenty of opportunities to learn and grow through the hard lessons of life, but one of the the best ways to grow in godliness and wisdom is to learn from other people who have learned the lessons already. Amen? And this is especially people who care about you and will say what you need to hear. I actually think this is really important. Because I think there's far, far more lessons amongst us. If we were to take all of us, the lessons that God has taught us in our lives, hundreds, thousands of lessons amongst us of what God has done through various parts of our lives. Ah, but whether we will say them, whether we will speak into someone else's life, that's the tricky part. Do you have people in your life who can do this? Are you one of those people willing to do this? Or are you trying to get through life by laughing it all off? It won't work. It won't grow. And other people will miss out as well. Now, indeed, humility leads to life. Fourthly, verse 7, extortion turns a wise person into a a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. This might might seem like a bit of an odd addition, but it's a really important one when we keep in mind the aim of this call to wisdom and what the good life, the tob life, looks like. You know, a, a quick buck on the side or a small dishonestly can seem like a harmless act, like no one gets hurt. Like, no one lost out, and I made a few bucks. Uh, But the teacher assures us that isn't the case. No one might die from that dishonesty, but our heart is harmed. Our heart is harmed. And that harm will turn us into a fool. We are turned from someone who wants to follow God into someone who doesn't want to follow God. All of this to say that a small dishonesty or corruption in our lives is like a small amount of poisoning. It might seem small, ah, but its effect can be huge, can't it? 
And on the flip side, honesty can seem boring. It can seem unprofitable. What do I, what do I get from this honesty? <laughs> you know, I don't get anything. But it really isn't. Honesty protects our life. It protects us from the poison and corruption of greed much more surely and much more severely than eating fried food will affect our physical heart. Yes, dishonesty turns us into fools while honesty protects our own life. Fifth, the end of the matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. And you know what? I wonder, I was thinking about this this week, uh, if someone asked us, if God turned up, if God turned up and said, David, I want you to put together eight, uh, eight ways to live for people. I wonder if David or any of us would include something about anger in that. I'm suspicious a lot of us would leave this off the list. And yet, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, and indeed God, did not leave this off the list. No, he includes it for us, and it is worthy of our attention. I think God knows we need to hear this. The end of the matter is tob, better, good, than its beginning. How you end matters. Oh, oh, hear me. How you start matters. But even if you start well, the crunch, the proof of the pudding is seen in how you end and how you finish. And this is why patience, a self-controlled life, is better than pride. Pride gets us into trouble. Pride gets us uh, drawing and firing fast, shooting off our mouth at people. But patience, a self-controlled, or we might say spirit-controlled temper, will see us through. Oh, There is a time to act. There is a time to get fired up about things. But how often are we getting fired up about things and shooting off at people? What do your workmates know of you? Do they know your patience or do they know your temper? What do your children know of you? Do they know your patience? Do they know your temper? Blast. (laughs) What does your spouse know of you? Uh, What does God know of you? Do you want to last? Do you want to get to the end and bear good fruit in your life? Well, God wants you to. And you will bear fruit of one sort or another. You will. You'll bear fruit of something. Either the fruit of pride, though, or the fruit of patience. And this is something we do need to work on. Anger is not a small matter. Number six. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. You know, I worked with a a guy for many years. He was a whole lot of fun to work with. I want to preface this. Whole lot of fun to work with. But this was one of his default phrases, actually. Uh, He was younger than me. And we'd work together, and something would happen. Someone would say something. He'd be like, back in my day. And again and again, this would come up. And you know what? It's, it's funny the first few times. It gets pretty annoying about the thousandth time. Well, the day came when, uh, actually, my patience had worn out. Uh, and I quoted this verse to him. 
And I don't know if that was helpful or not. I don't quite know how it was received, but I was getting pretty tired of things at that stage. Uh, but the teacher here points out that nostalgia often airbrushes the past to make it look a lot better than it was, while also shortchanging the future of any possibility. And we're probably all a little guilty of doing this. Have you ever been on like a fishing trip and it's terrible? Like there's no fish, or you get like two fish, and the weather's shocking and there's people throwing up. And you get back and they're like, yeah, how's that fishing trip? Oh, it's pretty good, pretty good. And you're like, no, it wasn't. It's terrible. <laughs> Honestly, it was. <laughs> we often forget the worst parts and highlight the better parts. And it's easy to do, isn't it? And the teacher objects to this because this, this attitude, this mindset, it's not fair. It passes judgment on the present before it's even played out. You know, you're looking at a situation going, oh, that wouldn't have happened back in my day. And it's like, whatever, at least if you let it happen, you haven't even seen what's going to come from it. Grumbling is all too easy to do, isn't it? Gosh. No one needs to teach you to grumble, do they? Just, just do it. But faithfulness, gosh, that's hard. But it's wise. And you know what? I don't know if you, you like history, love history, hate history. Either way, history is important. But this is the time God has you in. You know your history. Learn from it. But this is also the time God has you in, not another time, this time. And he is calling you to respect it and to invest in it. Don't check out. Don't be saying, well, back in my day, or maybe back in your day that would have happened. But right here, right now, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? And some of us need to hear this message today. You know, the Israelites... Uh, God led them out of slavery in Egypt. Miracle upon miracle. And they get into the wilderness, and what do they do? Grumble, grumble, grumble. I want to go back, God. And you read it in Exodus, and you're like, are you kidding me? You know what you just left. But they didn't just grumble once. They grumbled multiple times. And it's so easy to do. So, so easy to do. Let us not make the same mistake. God calls us forward to himself. You are here for a reason. Be faithful in it. Verse 11. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good tob, thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. You know, we put a lot of energy in our lives into making money uh, and rightly so. Money is indeed a shelter. It literally puts a roof over our heads. Uh, it gives us food. It gives us the ability to do things, good things. But knowledge about God and about life, which is what this wisdom is, is better. It preserves us, the teacher says. Oh, money helps us in life, but wisdom, knowing God and his ways, preserves us for eternity. As Jesus said at the beginning, sorry, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise person is the one who builds their life on his teachings. The storms come, 
God's judgment comes and their life stands. But the foolish builder, uh, their life will not stand. They might have it all. Their house might look impressive. But in the end, it will fall. And great will be its fall, Jesus warns us. Yes, godly wisdom protects our lives. It guides us in the ways everlasting. It helps us to build our lives that they would indeed last. And we want that, don't we? We do want our lives to last. Last point, point number eight. (coughs) Verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Uh, These verses uh, get me thinking particularly of the person of Job in the Bible. Uh, If you know his story, it's a hang of a story. We studied it a while ago here. Uh, Job was indeed a wise man. Uh, He lived a righteous life, we are told, before God. And he was generous and kind. Uh, He lived out God's law, indeed, looking after the widow and the orphan. And yet, he lost it all. Without knowing why, crooked times came upon him. And initially, Job responded rightly. In fact, he responded amazingly. Uh, Even in the midst of his grief and loss, he worshipped God for who he is, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I mean, wow, right? And when he went on to lose his health and his own wife was not helping the matter, telling him just to curse God and die, Job spoke rightly saying, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Yes, indeed, without knowing his future, without knowing what lay before him, Job was aware that God had made or allowed uh, the bad days as surely as he had made or allowed the good days. The day, whichever one it was, didn't change who God was. All too often in our lives, though, it does. (laughs) Uh, When I can't get that parking space, where are you, God? (laughs) Which is ridiculous. Job's struggle came when he tried to go beyond this and to work out his own justice. That's when he started to go wrong, when he started to err. And we can do the same. There is no guarantee, brothers and sisters, that in our lives we will know why, why you will know why, why God allows some good days and some bad days. No guarantee that you will know why. No guarantee that I will know why. And in the midst of them, it's really difficult. It is. But that doesn't change who God is. It doesn't. And we need the assurance that God is still God and still good, even when the rain comes and our lives falter or fail. 
Because indeed the teacher wants us to be prepared to lead the good life, the better life, and it begins and it ends with God. That the fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. That when we put God in his rightful place, especially when the days are crooked and everything hurts, including having the flu, then we can live well. It's one thing to live well when the days are easy and straight. It's another thing to live well, to live good, to live tub when the days are crooked. And we all have those crooked days. They're not the same, but we all have them. Yes, even when we have cancer and the diagnosis is all bad, we can trust God. I mean, come on. He's proven it pretty convincingly. We can trust him that we are his, his children, and he is indeed our God. And that, that trust, that reverence, that awe, that putting God in his rightful place is exactly what we need to live the good life, living as God would have us live. There's eight ways the teacher of Ecclesiastes gives us. I wonder which of them has spoken to you today because God is calling us to himself. He wants us to live well, doesn't he? He really does. He's not going to pussyfoot around it, though. Your life, my life, our lives, they're not all easy, as much as we wish they were. (laughs) But he is with us and he is for us in them. Let's pray together. Uh, Almighty God, Honestly, the book of Ecclesiastes tells me, I think tells us, some things we probably don't want to hear at times. uh, But it is real, it is true, and Lord, I pray that this morning, that in amongst them all, these eight points, that we have heard that you are calling us to yourself, to indeed to trust you and to show you forth in our lives, to be found faithful by you, recognizing our our own limits, Lord. Lord, I don't even know what this afternoon holds, let alone tomorrow or next week. (coughs) I don't. But I know your goodness. We know your goodness. May we not lose that. But indeed, may that great assurance, that great promise that you have given to us in Jesus, your son, that we are indeed your children and that you are indeed our God, may it lead us on May it lead us on in in our marriages and in our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our workmates, with our families, with all that we are. That in indeed, God, you would find us faithful. You would find us faithful living as your children. For your glory, I pray. Amen.